Welcome to CBUS Speaks, a podcast series by Tenfold, featuring real talk between Columbus leaders and the next generation. Today on CBUS Speaks, we're very excited to capstone our slate of incredible guests with Alex Fisher. Alex has held many private and public positions throughout his career, including time in government, serving as Deputy Governor and Chief of Staff to Tennessee Governor Don Sundquist. He was also the Director of Technology Transfer and Economic Development for Patel, which eventually brought him to Columbus. Alex is currently the President and CEO of the Columbus Partnership, a civic organization of Columbus, Ohio's top business leaders formed in 2002 to improve the economic and cultural base of Central Ohio. Alex has been active on numerous for-profit boards and community organizations, including serving as the past chairman of Velocis, Omniviz, and the SunTrust Bank of East Tennessee Board of Directors. He currently serves as chairman of Nationwide Children's Hospital, is a trustee of the Ohio State University, and on the board of Advanced Drainage Systems, One Columbus, Nationwide Children's Championship, the Ohio State Innovation Foundation, and the advisory board for White Oak Partners, LLC. Thank you for being here with us today, Alex, and we're excited to have you capstone this podcast. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Just going back to your background, um, you were born in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Talk to us a little bit about you know your childhood growing up. Yeah, you know, as a, as a little kid, uh, just running around in what then was a pretty small town, it was... Um, Hendersonville was a country music haven of, uh, of Nashville back in the day. My mom and dad were school teachers, and um, we lived in a very modest house among a lot of country music stars, Tammy Wynette and Johnny Cash and, you know, a whole bunch of others, and you didn't necessarily know the difference uh, growing up. Um, and there was a big patch of woods on the lake uh, near our house that I've spent an awful lot of time in building a log cabin, canoeing on the lake, and building fires and fell in love with the books called Foxfire, which was how to live off the land. And probably my earliest aspiration was to be a forest ranger and uh, probably born out of all the time that I would spend outdoors in the woods. Uh, so far away from, you know, whatever I got involved in. But along the way, I, I got really interested in uh, city planning and, um, uh, a little bit of local politics and some state politics. And the origins of that were in high school, I was um, uh, our student body president. And uh, next door to our school was a big antebellum southern home. Um, and a portion of the property of that home had been given to build our high school. And the, the lady who owned the house uh, left in her will uh, the rest of the property uh, to the high school and the old house was going to become kind of a library annex. But the will got contested uh, by some distant relatives and ultimately they won and the school didn't get the property and Walmart was trying to buy it. And so by the time I arrived in high school, this had been a controversy in our little city. And as a student body president, I decided to uh, go to City Hall and speak in open mic forum at the City Planning Commission and ultimately uh, the following week at City Council. And that literally led to a year's worth of journeys every Tuesday night because uh, they had a rotating schedule. And I would literally just grab the mic and get up and, you know, complain or make a little speech or talk about, you know, the development of the property. Ultimately, Walmart didn't tear down all the trees and build their shopping center. Uh, an office developer actually did and preserved the house and uh, uh, many of the historic nature of the trees and whatnot. 
And that started a real interest uh, when I was in high school leading into college at the University of Tennessee uh, that intersected around urban planning, uh, cities, you know, government and, you know, politics. It's kind of interesting now doing what I do to, to look back on it and, you know, think about the fact that I actually was a little grounded in what I ended up doing. Yeah, that's super interesting because a lot of the people we've talked to have said, you know, I didn't have any idea what I was going to do. But yeah, just looking at, you know, your degrees in college, a BA in business administration, master's in school of architecture and planning, you know, it seems like you really knew what you wanted to do from an early age. You know, I had a, I had an inkling. Um, and one time in high school, I met the then governor of, uh, of Tennessee, a guy named Ned Ray McWhorter, and we got into a little bit of a debate actually on income taxes in some type of a student forum. And uh, as even a younger child, I had a, you know, um, uh, Lamar Alexander bumper sticker on my door, primarily because his name was Alexander, and that's my total <laughs> name, Alex, short for Alexander. And, and so in a strange way, I had this interest in wanting to be the governor of Tennessee when I was in, uh, you know, those early uh, days and sort of damn well near came close to doing it. But really the story of my life is I always tell kids the easiest way to make God laugh is to show him your plans because it was always a winding path to everything uh, that I've, I've done. And it is interesting to look back and think about all the associations, but um, you know, I've um, uh, jumped around to a bunch of different things that I have always uh, enjoyed and liked in different types of organizations. So certainly been an eclectic journey. So you just, you brought up that you came pretty close to being governor of, of Tennessee. You were deputy governor. What was that path there and how, how did you end up there? What was what were some takeaways from that journey? Yeah, so, you know, one of the misnomers of it is in Tennessee, the only statewide elected official is the governor, and he appoints everybody else, uh, and or there's an appointment process, unlike in Ohio, where everybody runs for uh, dog catcher and everything else. <laughs> so I was appointed into the job first, uh, into running uh, the Department of Economic Development when I was uh, 28 or 29 years old, and then later uh, as um as deputy governor, um, really serving as the governor's chief of staff and kind of the administrative person uh, running the departments of state government. Um, we were, I was involved in a PR and advertising firm and several of our partners were very close to the person, Don Sundquist, who was running the, for governor and we got active in his campaign and uh, got to know him. Um, and you know, one job led to the next job, and we became, you know, very, very close, obviously, um, and honed my political skills. And at one point in time, thought I might try to succeed him, but it wasn't really in the uh, political cards. And, uh, uh, you know, decided to step off the uh, political track and uh, get into the uh, business world working uh, for Battelle. You know, we talk a lot about like seminal moments and moments in time where um, you have to make a decision, and it could be a a good decision looking back or a bad decision. Go further in depth a little bit about um, your decision to, you know, leave government and go back into the private sector. Yeah, so I was really serious about uh, thinking about running for governor. And I was a, a moderate Republican, somebody who, uh, you know, um, wasn't a card-carrying member of the NRA and believed in uh, women's rights and, you know, some more social issues that weren't uh, necessarily mainstream, uh, conservative, 
Um, I was a very big proponent and architect of a failed income tax uh, in Tennessee, and it was all around tax fairness, but that's a whole nother uh, story. And so it was a bit of an awakening to realize that there was no way I could win a Republican primary. Um, I might could have won a general election, but I probably couldn't win what was increasingly becoming a more uber conservative state to say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to leave this behind. And I actually had a job offer in hand. I was going to become a corporate officer in the number two uh, person at a publicly traded company called Corrections Corporation of America. They run private prisons, which is actually interesting to think about in today's environment and a lot of the debates uh, going on around uh, justice reform. Um, And I still have the piece of paper. I was being offered um, 500,000 shares of stock options uh, in the company, which, uh, had I decided to do it, was probably going to make me uh, wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. And I had a happenstance dinner with... um, the executive vice president of Battelle and uh, their CEO, um, who I had worked with. I helped to broker the partnership between Battelle and the University of Tennessee to bid on the Oak Ridge National Lab, which is in the state of Tennessee. So I had gotten to know Battelle, you know, several, any number of years before. I had come to Columbus in my first trip and come down to the short north and had dinner at uh, uh, in the, in the short North, uh, you know, before, uh, it was very popular. And, uh, at that dinner, we were basically having a conversation of, um, um, our great partnership and our administration was winding down and they were asking me what I was going to do. Uh, what I didn't really know is they were fishing to see if I wanted to do something with them. And I said, well, I had, um, worked on this deal, I kind of confidentially told them what I was doing because of New York Stock Exchange rules. You really couldn't announce it until, uh, you know, with certain requirements. And they said, gosh, we're really disappointed. We thought you might come work with us uh, someday. And I said, wow, really, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, tell me more. And we had a little bit of a conversation about it. And you know, the next morning I woke up and I was just thinking about, you know, waking up every day and what do you want to do? Uh, the passions that I'd had, uh, the interest that I'd always had in helping people and helping uh, communities. I certainly had an itch to want to do something in the business world. And Battelle was, you know, a, a very interesting business organization. Uh, it's private, but not prof- not for profit, you know, with a mission. And I had I had this very interesting uh, uh, coffee this morning where you were reflecting on uh, what was it going to be like to wake up every morning and go run prisons and run private prisons for a profit. And, you know, you're kind of staring at the offer of your life uh, that's going to make you tens of millions of dollars. And you're really having a gut check about what you want to do with your life. And um, I called them that afternoon and they faxed me uh, offer by the end of the day and uh, that 24-hour period of time uh, changed the course of life and I've got a bunch of different instances in which that's happened but uh, you know in that instance it 
you know, changes my life. And there's no way I would have, you know, been here in Columbus doing some of the funnest things that I've ever done uh, in an amazing uh, city that I now call my hometown. Uh, so, yeah, they're interesting moments. But that one was really fraught with reflecting on uh, what you were passionate about. Uh, looking yourself in the mirror when only you're looking at yourself and saying, okay, what is it I want to do uh, every day? And for me, uh, ultimately, it wasn't running prisons. It's really interesting that you bring up this idea of doing what you love, following your passion. That has definitely been a theme in our podcast while we've been interviewing these different leaders around Columbus. And I think that speaks a lot to who these leaders are, someone like yourself doing what you love. How did you know that was what you loved? I, you know, uh, mine's been interesting. Um, I've never had a job interview, not a single job interview in my entire life. I think I did it maybe at Wendy's, which was one of my very first <laughs> jobs, uh, you know, flipping hamburgers. But um, I've always had this very diverse set of interests. Um, I'm sort of like the dog who likes to chase a squirrel. And uh, there are always lots of squirrels out there, and I've always found lots of things interesting. Um, and as a result of that, you find uh, at different moments of time lots of things that are, you know, really passionate. And, and what I have found, I didn't know this, I had no idea growing up. Look, um, my mom, again, my mom and dad were school teachers, so my theory is if I could, you know, be an assistant city planner, planner somewhere in, a, in working for city government, that that would be, you know, a great aspiration and by the way it is and um, you know ad admire you know what anybody does the the idea though that you could chase those passions and make a living at it um, you know was lost on me early in life uh, but I really think that's the real trick making the living is an easy thing uh, I now have found out uh, it's finding the things that you love to do uh, in the process that's a little bit trickier. So, um, you know, trial and error, uh, uh, trying a bunch of different things and, and you know, being willing to, uh, you know, not be too set on whether or not uh, they were in your lane as, they, as it might be, so to speak. So going back to this time when you came to Columbus, this transition from Tennessee to Columbus, what was that transition like? Well, so look, I was moving our family, uh, two young kids, uh, you know, um, our my middle son had absolutely no interest in uh, moving. I think he was in third grade. He came downstairs on the first day of school with a, a T-shirt that said SEC, Southeastern Conference <laughs> Rules. This is when you know, Florida was having a dominant period over Ohio State. And I said, Ethan, that's probably not the best way to win friends. <laughs> uh, and he says, I don't care. Uh, and he sort of, you know, never did on, on that front. Uh, so big family transition, um, but really a big professional transition as well. Um, I was used to waking up every day in the public eye uh, in some uh, city or town in, in Tennessee uh, you know, in state government, um, I'd spent a little bit of time at the Oak Ridge National Lab with Patel. But here in Columbus, it was totally nose down in the business world, um, you know, managing and thinking about Patel's uh, intellectual property, the commercialization of technology, several of those companies that you referenced that I was on the boards of were companies that we were spinning out. I was traveling a lot. Uh, at one point, I had a schedule of being on the road 200 nights a year, 100 nights a year in Asia. 
as I was working in Japan and China and Korea, uh, in India on a set of intellectual property uh, uh, ideas in a company that we were creating. Um, and it had nothing to do with community. Um, I literally, you know, knew Columbus through, uh, you know, soccer fields on the weekend uh, or swimming pools as a case for my kids were uh, in Upper Arlington. And a little bit about the Business Journal uh, because I found it a little odd that the uh, Columbus Dispatch, and I later told this to John F. Wolf, who I became very close with, uh, had at that time the business page relegated to the back of the sports page. And I would carry around Columbus Business first. Um, and on airplanes, I would read it and read a little bit about Columbus just because I was interested, but I really didn't know anybody. Um, but then there was another interesting, you know, talk about, you know, moments. Um, my governor, Don Sundquist, had been a member of Congress, and um, uh, it was during the Reagan administration, and there was a young staffer that he had gotten to know uh, from his committee in Congress uh, out of the uh, Commerce Department. His name was Bruce Saul. And um, uh, Don, Governor Sundquist, you know, knowing that I was moving to Columbus, said, you, you've got to meet my friend Bruce Saul. He works for this guy. Uh, they have a big retail, you know, company, but, you know, you're really going to like him. He's somebody can introduce you around. And I'm like, I remember thinking and talking to myself, yeah, Don, thank you, but I am leaving all of that stuff behind. Last thing I need to do is meet another, you know, political person. Uh, I'm going to go conquer the business world. And Bruce and I tried actually for about uh, maybe uh, almost a couple of years to, you know, we'd set up coffee and get canceled or, you know, we didn't really try very hard. And one day I met uh, Bruce Shaw at, at uh, Starbucks in Bexley. And it was like meeting your brother from another mother. <laughs> and by the, you know, the end of coffee, we were talking to Ralph Regula, a congressman in Ohio, and comparing, you know, Congressman Regula knew uh, Don Sundquist. And we were calling Dave Hobson, who I happen to know, who was a member of Congress here. And, you know, one thing led to the next. And Bruce said, you should come out uh, and meet uh, my boss, Les Wexter. And I said, yeah, I've heard of the guy. We should go out and be happy to come out and he says why don't you come out for lunch and I go back to Patel and they I kind of say I'm hey I'm going to go to lunch with this guy named Les Wexter my CEO Carl Court was on the then very little Columbus partnership and they all kind of freak out it's like well what do you mean you're going to see <laughs> Les Wexter I said I don't know uh you know, Bruce invited me to come over and have lunch with him so I'm gonna go have lunch and we had lunch that day, and lunch turned into the afternoon, and uh, Bruce and Les and Jack Kessler and I took a drive around New Albany and, uh, you know, talked for hours uh, on end. And um, it, it, that wasn't the moment necessarily that changed everything from a Patel standpoint, or maybe it was because, um, you know, then that set of relationships and then how they developed over the next several years uh, you know, certainly it once again uh, changed a course of life uh, that I would have never anticipated.
Yeah, so I know mentors have also been a big theme throughout this. So I'm interested, as you talked about, with your unique relationship with both John Wolfe and Les Wexner. You know, those are names that have consistently come up through all of our conversations. So I'm just interested in your view on their role in shaping Columbus and creating, you know, what the organization that is now known as the Columbus Partnership, which you're the CEO of. Well, you know, clearly they were the founders of the Columbus Partnership. Um, so, you know, it'd be easy to look back in the organizational documents, if you will, and say, okay, they, they, they founded it. But, you know, much more than, than creating an organization, um, you know, to me what, you know, they both have done, along with a number of other people in Columbus, um, uh, you know, is set forth a culture in uh, a culture of, uh, you know, involvement, you know, in the community and a culture that says, you know, there's a greater purpose than uh, just running your business, uh, a greater purpose than just making money. Um, and for both of them, um, you know, it was, you know, something that they taught, but it's also something they expected. It was what they held other people, you know, to a higher standard you know, uh, but oh, by the way, other mentors had taught that to them, you know, John McCoy, uh, you know, certainly for, for, for less, there were other people in the community over time, uh, John McConnell, Mr. Mack, and, you know, uh, this Midwestern culture of, uh, uh, entrepreneurs being involved in their community. And so, you know, best personified by uh, Les and John, but taught by a lot of people over the years uh, in Columbus that really manifest in the culture. And for me, the first time I heard it wasn't in Columbus. It was when I was 22 or 23 years old in graduate school, working for a nonprofit. And on the board of that nonprofit was a guy named Jim Haslam. He is uh, Jimmy and Dee Haslam's father and father-in-law who now own the Columbus crew in a very twist of irony. And he took me to lunch, and it was sort of would have been like Les Wexner or John Wolfe asking a 22-year-old kid. I shined my shoes, wasn't sure what in the world Jim Haslam wanted with me. And he was actually making a United Way pitch, wanted me to get involved in the United Way. Uh, and he said that day, um, I want you to think about something. Um, he said, this community has been really good to you uh, or it's going to or it will be really good to you. Um, but I want you to start thinking about what you're going to do to pay the community rent. And, you know, I probably thought, gosh, I can't even pay, pay my own rent. What are you talking about? The community rent. And, you know, in Columbus, that would have been something Woody Hayes would have said. What are you going to do to pay it forward? Um and that sign still hangs on my desk. It has every desk I've ever had, a little quote from Jim Haslam that says, what are you going to do to pay the community rent? Well, that's really what John F. and Les have been teaching and asking and practicing in this culture of the Columbus way, probably in the greatest collection of business leaders that I've ever seen. Uh, you know, most towns have a Jim Haslam. Um, uh, or a Les Wexner, for that matter, uh, that get very involved. Uh, very few towns have this culture that permeates it in which CEOs and civic leaders and uh, leaders of big companies and small companies, uh, uh, just like the leader here of Tenfold, 
um, get involved in the community and they do it because it's a part of their culture and it's an expectation. Um, uh, not necessarily because they've uh, um, uh, struck it rich uh, or, you know, made it to the promised land, but because they're just committed uh, to their community. So I think uh, John F. and Les certainly have created an extraordinarily unique uh, uh, standard uh, in culture that we're all uh, seeking to emulate. So this this idea of giving back to the community, the Columbus way, was that something you felt when you first came to Columbus? Or did that develop along with the Columbus partnership and as you integrated yourself more into the community? So I remember the first one of the pivotal times in really thinking about this. Um, so it wasn't when I first came to Columbus. I was kind of pretty busy, didn't really know Columbus. But, you know, after being here for a couple of years with Patel, uh, being kind of a quiet executive at, at Patel that, again, was traveling a lot, uh, because of that happenstance with Bruce and uh, my CEO, Carl Court, being involved in the partnership, I got invited to dinner. Um, and that dinner was at the Wexner's house, and it was with uh, seven or eight uh, members of the partnership. It was John F. Wolf, and then Kerry Clark at Cardinal Health, and Dan Rosenthal at NetJets, and Dave Blum from Ohio Health, and Kessler, and Wexner, and Wolf, and uh, Abigail was there. And the, the dinner conversation was economic development, and I was sort of the featured guest. Um, because um, Carl Court had said, hey, I've got a guy that does economic development partnerships, kind of interested. This was economic downturn. It happened 2000, you know, seven and eight time period. They were worried about where Columbus was headed. And I kind of came in to pontificate about things I had done in Tennessee in the economic development world. And Several southern states had always been pretty aggressive in economic development, so I kind of gave a bit of a, uh, probably a, maybe I even reflect on it, I, I think I might have been a little arrogant. I didn't really care. It was interesting to be there. I've been in a lot of big houses before uh, in various settings. That was one of the nicest. I remember uh, the next day um, I flew to China, and China's a really long flight from Columbus. And I remember reflecting on that dinner. And there were three very distinct things that came to mind. One, that was a big house. Number two, <laughs> I don't know much about artwork, but I think those might have been <laughs> Picassos on the, on the wall. But third, I was really struck by seven or eight CEOs that were kind of like Jim Haslam would have been, except there were seven or eight of them. And they were passionate and they were curious and they were interested. And they were really thinking about what it was going to take to make uh, Columbus, uh, you know, a better place. I think that's the first time that I saw that spark uh, of the culture uh, that was occurring, uh, just kind of in that uh, private dinner setting. Uh, I, I guess over the last 12 years, I've seen it in so many countless settings now, it'd be hard to recall them all. Um, and it's sort of you know, expected in happenstance for me these days. But, uh, you know, back then you could just tell based on the conversation, based on the genuineness of the individuals in the room having the conversations uh, that this was a special place. So, you know, after you decide to come on as president and CEO of the Columbus Partnership, just let our listeners into a little bit about 
uh, like more specifically what you guys do and if they don't know already and you know what you guys are working on right now into the future yeah back then we were 12 ceos today we're 75 uh, that's been a big part of the journey getting more people around the table more inclusiveness more perspective we're still a ceo group um, so you know the leading uh, leaders of uh, companies and institutions uh, in central Ohio. Uh, we leave our selfish interest at the door, bring our community interest to the table. Um, you know, back then, 12 years ago, we were really worried about economic uh, development. We studied it. We went to cities around the country to, with the mayor to understand best practices. We developed the then Columbus 2020 uh, vision and plan and stood up the organization to do economic uh, development. That's always been our primary focus. Um, that is the economic prosperity uh, of the community. You know, never once have, you know, I know you've interviewed Alex Shoemate and Bobby Schottenstein and uh, Tanny Crane and other members. Never once have I ever seen any one of our members bringing, um, you know, the interest of their company to say, let's help me with this problem in my company. It's always, let's think about the community. Now, uh, now we're a different organization. You know, back then, uh, the economic development organization that's now One Columbus didn't exist. Uh, you know, it does. It's a part of us. Uh, you know, Smart Columbus, uh, which we created along with Mayor Ginther, uh, you know, is a part of us. Um, a, a lot of our CEOs are involved in the Downtown Development Corporation and the renaissance that's uh, occurred, uh, you know, downtown. Um, uh, a number of our CEOs have been involved in, you know, education reform, not really one of our greater uh, sets of uh, accomplishments, but we, we've learned a lot. Um, we were the founders of the KIPP school, uh, and, you know, several of our CEOs, uh, including Abigail Wexner, you know, who's now its biggest champion and, and spun it out and passed the hat in the early days to create the KIPP school. Uh, we gained a lot of notoriety for the quote unquote, saving the crew, uh, you know, kind of movement. We've done projects related to, you know, making sure we didn't have a, downtown casino because we were concerned about it, you know, kind of ruining the fabric of downtown, promoting things like the Sayota Peninsula and the National Veterans Memorial and Museum. And so a whole potpourri of issues. Um, I kind of often say that the issues of the day, uh, right now we're thinking about uh, community policing reform and what's it mean to bring, uh, you know, uh, police who we respect and who we honor, but at the same time acknowledge that we have some really deep-rooted problems and how do we think about a different kind of partnership and relationship that could happen with police and the community. We're turning the mirror on corporate Columbus to say, what does it mean for all of us to simply admit and to say we've got to work on systemic uh, racism, that uh, the idea of white privilege is real um, and that these can be really tough discussions uh, and awakenings, but how do we use the moments of the summer uh, to be a moment of good and lasting uh, change in society? Uh, we've been working on uh, the challenges of uh, the year 2020 and COVID uh, and what it means to shut down companies and to work from different locations and what's it mean to our underlying belief so at the end of the day, we're 75 CEOs. 
uh, with a lot of other partners that help us, uh, civic leaders. Everything we do is in public-private partnership, always aimed at making Columbus a better place, always aimed at a prosperity agenda. Uh, back in uh, 2010, we wanted to create, you know, 150,000 net new jobs. Uh, you know, today we're asking ourselves a question, what, what would it mean to be the city that has the greatest prosperity for all of its citizens? Uh, not just those at the top, but uh, everybody, you know, across. We worry about the, the, um, the economic divide. We're very concerned about civility uh, and the insanity that is going on uh, in Washington and party politics. And we're equally concerned about uh, corruption that's going on at the statehouse and how we make sure that government is honest uh, in working for the common good with good public policy. So uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pull back. That's an Alex Fisher ramble, as my yeah. staff well, no, would say. Actually, so. my, that's, that's great, because my next question was going to be, what's next for Columbus? What does the Columbus Partnership see for the future of Columbus, whether it's business, community, whatever it may be? So the question I ask is, where are we going to be in the year 2120? a hundred years from now when none of us are alive. And a group of business leaders asked that question in Chicago about back in 1905, and they wrote the Burnham Plan. They hired Burnham, the famous landscape architect, to have a physical master plan for the city of Chicago. But it was also a social plan. But what they were really thinking about is, how is the city of Chicago going to you know, evolve over the next hundred years? Um, and clearly, it became one of the major cosmopolitan cities of the world. Um, I used to say that Columbus was a second-tier city, you know, to Chicago and New York and L.A. And, you know, we'll, we'll never be one of those cities. And uh, today, I think that, you know, uh, we're no longer second-tier. I'm not sure I'd want to be a first-tier city uh, in the post-COVID COVID world. We'll see. Um, but I wonder where we're going to be in the year 2100 or 2120, 100 years from now. Uh, will there still be a Columbus Way? Will there be a group of CEOs who are as passionate about the community as we are? Will we be practicing in partnership with good government, public-private partnerships? Will we be leaving our selfish interest at the door and looking at how we work on community problems? Could we be the city uh, that cracks the code on prosperity for all? Uh, could we be a city that is leading uh, and has long left in the rearview mirror uh, systemic racism where that's no longer uh, an issue like it is uh, today? Um, so uh, the ingredient in my mind is culture. It's not going to come with a single individual. It won't come with a project. They, in that hundred years, we'll... We'll lose a professional sports team, we'll gain one. We'll win economic development projects, we'll have protests, and we'll have uh, pandemics, and we'll have the highs and the lows that will go with the next 100 years. If we can maintain a culture that is rooted in what John F. and Les created, uh, which is really a cultural, uh, 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 heavy, deep keel, a North Star, uh, if we do that as a group of business leaders in partnership with governments, I'm confident that the year 2120 will be a, uh, Columbus will be a bright star, uh, you know, in the world. Um, uh, but that's what 
I think about is I you know think about the future. I just don't think about okay, what are we going to do next year for you know some particular you know project. Yeah, look, next year will be a lot of fun. Next summer we'll open up you know Cruz Stadium. It's going to be one of the coolest. Uh, you know, uh, MLS uh, stadiums and sporting venues in, in America. Uh, but that's not what we plan for. Uh, that's not how we think about it. Yeah, I think, you know, you really said it all and got into really what this podcast is about because, you know, me and Molly, we have seen like the foundation that's been set by these these leaders and, and you and the Columbus Partnership. So we were just trying to inspire the next generation to stay involved or people that have success in Columbus to give back like these leaders that are kind of nearing the end of their careers have over so many years. So you bring up culture is so important. Obviously here at Tenfold, we value culture above all else. And we've heard in the, in the conversations we've had with these different leaders that the culture in Columbus is unparalleled. I'm curious if you can tell me what that culture is. What is it that is this culture that makes it so special for our listeners, for anyone who doesn't experience Columbus? Yeah. You know, so um, <clears throat> culture is also probably one of the hardest things to define. You know it when you feel it and you see it and you're, you're living it. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a collaborative culture. It's an open culture. It's a culture that's welcoming. You know, here I am, uh, you know, I've been here for 12 years and sort of had the keys to the city and still talk like a, you know, Southern hick. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's curious, um, it doesn't drink its own bathwater is saying, you know, what are others doing that are, you know, interesting that we should emulate? It, it's never settling. It's always saying, what are we going to do to keep getting better? It's a culture that's not afraid to, to face the tough issues. I mean, uh, uh, fascinating culture this summer, watching our CEOs uh, get really raw in private, but really raw on the topics of race and really get vulnerable to think about, wow, um, this is 2020. And what is our, in, what are our individual roles? What are our organization roles? Well, you know, that's a piece of that culture, the, the ability to be vulnerable, uh, to be safe in relationships, um, uh, to be curious that we can all grow uh, and become uh, better. And so, People use the Columbus Way uh, as the moniker uh, for that. That's not the Columbus Partnerships. Uh, it's not unique to a group of CEOs. Um, I, I see it in neighborhoods. I see it in civic organizations. I see it in the two of you all. Um, and, and so um, uh, when we are recruiting you know, economic uh, development opportunities, talking with CEOs from other parts of the country, you, you know, you, we, we, we try to describe it and you kind of use all of these words, but I really say you've got to come uh, and feel it and live it. Um, and that's when you really begin to uh, understand it. Yeah. Well, this has been so insightful for us, really a great conversation. And our goal here is to preserve that culture and share it with this upcoming generation in Columbus. And I would just love to ask if there's anything. Yeah, but I'm going to interrupt you yeah. because I, I, I love your goal. I love what you all are doing. Um, but don't preserve the culture, perpetuate it and promote it. And it will be a culture that evolves. I am certain that we don't have it right. But I am certain that, you know, if we'll push it out and we'll get people thinking about what they're going to do to pay the community rent, as uh, Jim Haslam told me, 
um, that that culture can keep evolving. So I think in 2120, uh, we need to have that culture, but it can't be exactly as it is. It's going to change a lot, and that change will be good uh, for the culture of Columbus. And you all are playing a big part of it, so thank you for uh, exercising your power to convene. It's interesting, right? One of the greatest powers in the world is to power to get people together. And that's what you're doing in, you know, these fun new formats. Yeah. Well, we're so glad that you're able to be here and share this time with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been such a great experience. And, you know, all these local leaders we've talked to have been, they've all basically responded. I'd be honored to to come on and and talk about Columbus. So yeah, it's been, it's been great. Thank Just you so much. Just speaks to the Columbus way. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's pretty fascinating. You can, uh, uh, I, I, I doubt there's very few, if anybody, that you couldn't get to come, you know, sit and have this uh, conversation with you. And I, uh, I think that's, uh, I just don't think that happens in New York and Chicago. Absolutely. Maybe it does, but we I, agree, I, I, yeah. I don't yeah. think so. That's why we're here. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Thanks for listening to CBUS Speaks. Keep up with the conversation on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at Tenfold Talks.